Hello, everyone, and welcome to a very special edition of Molly Movie Club. I am Casey Muratori. And I'm Anna Rutberg. And this, hot off the presses, is Oppenheimer, which this is the first time I think we're ever reviewing a movie in the theaters. I think so, yeah. Yeah. That just came out. That just came out. Opening weekend was last weekend. Yes. This is normally, I mean, normally we don't even do new movies, because why bother? (laughs) <laughs> but, but sometimes new movies come out and we do take a look at them. And this movie was a very interesting one that we saw the trailer for and stuff like that, because we've always said that we think that this particular director is very good at putting together the actual like technical parts of movies, but it tends to fall apart in the actual storytelling. Mm-hmm. And we were wondering mm-hmm. if, like Dunkirk, which was another one of his films, would this be a movie where, because it's based on historical events, the story part works itself out better and we get a really great film out of it? The answer for me was no. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All so, right. Okay, I don't <clears throat> think this movie is awful or anything. I tried to go in with like not really a lot of expectations, but because of the like I thought the trailer was really, really good. And I think I went in I went in with certain expectations, maybe, or hopes. And I the movie that I saw did not meet those expectations, I think. Um I think for me the biggest issue was it felt like the movie was trying to tell way too much stuff. It it almost felt like two different movies smushed together also. Like, it, like, almost, it, like, its attention, like its attention was drawn too many places. Um, I think I would have much preferred if Nolan had just chosen like a section of Oppenheimer's life. Maybe the Trinity, sort of like the build up to Trinity and that. I felt like he was torn between trying to tell two stories. One was the story of Oppenheimer's relationship with the creation of this weapon. And then the other was this like political... I mean, the Robert Downey Jr. character was like a villain, like almost like a like a silly level of villain. Yeah. He's like arch nemesis kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, and that almost came out of nowhere at the end of the movie. And we spent a huge amount of time with that. And I just felt like it was unnecessary and distracting if if your goal was to have this be more about the emotional impact of like creating this devastating weapon. So I don't know. It was just it was a little bit all over the place for me. So I would agree with that. I would say that uh, it pretty much it avoided the problems of like a Christopher Nolan original screenplay, which is to say that nothing in the movie like doesn't make sense. Like there's no like. Yeah. So so it's able to at least use the historical material to make sure that like everything that happened in the movie made sense. And I understood what was going on at all times, which is more than I can say. For, you know, something like Interstellar, where I'm like, wait, what? No, no, you're not behind a bookshelf. Like, this is just ridiculous. Exactly. (laughs) None of that's happening, and that's a good, that is a plus. I do think Nolan should probably do more of these historical fiction things. Yes. But, yeah, I guess what I would say about this one is that unlike Dunkirk, where it's wisely focused on a very, like, small sort of 
instant in time Mm -hmm. so that you could basically just like really deeply explore what was going on Mm -hmm. at that literal. I mean, it was literally like a few hours, right? Was the, the idea behind Dunkirk is to show like just this one day. Exactly. Right. Uh, I feel like this movie definitely had the problem of if you're going to try and tackle something like this, and and to be completely honest, I don't even really know if the problem is that it was trying to be too broad. I think it's just if you're going to try and tackle something like this that where the truth has a lot of parts to it. Mm-hmm. So even just the Trinity test, there's just a lot to it. Yes, there's absolutely. so many moving parts to that and so many people involved, so many issues. There's the science, there's the politics, there's the the spying, there's the, you know, there's so much stuff going on there. There's the race against the Germans. That I feel like no matter what scope he picked on this, I do worry that just when it starts to become narrative, I feel like, I mean, I just, it's one of those cases where I just really wish he was paired with a great screenwriter. I just, I feel like these are just basic kind of mistakes that are being made where it's like, you've got a lot of great scenes in here and they look fantastic, but no one. The movie looks great. It looks amazing. But nobody has figured out why these why these scenes and why this order, right? No yes. one has figured out why are these the ones we selected and why do they come in the order that they come, right? Mm-hmm. And which is the goal. Like, that's what a screenwriter, first and foremost to me, mm-hmm. is supposed to be doing. I mean, with historical fiction, they're not trying to write the story. They're trying to find this, organize the story, figure out. It's almost, it's almost like you could think of historical fiction writing as being similar to what a reality TV show's editor does. They take a bunch of information that really happened, as far as we know, and try to organize that and cull selectively, choose wisely, and and order properly something into a compelling like emotional experience where people understand the feeling and the meaning of what happened without seeing 100% of it, right? Without being there the entire time. Uh, and, you know, this, he just can't do it. He just can't do it yeah. in this movie, and there's so many reasons why, but that's the problem. There yeah. were For me, there were two movies in in this particular situation that I kept thinking of that, I've do- that are, are doing a similar thing better. The first I always think of for biopics is Lawrence of Arabia. I mean, it's the best biopic of all time. Because I think it managed to do something so brilliantly which is like you're trying you know the director and the writer are trying to say something broader about what happened and also try to distill down a very complicated person into like a movie length thing i think there has to be some level of accepting that you're not going to get accuracy and that's not that's not necessarily your goal like i think this movie was a little too concerned with like trying to be really really accurate and I think sometimes when when they get when movies get too focused on that, they like lose sight of the bigger picture. It's like if you're trying to talk about Oppenheimer's experience emotionally with this thing and the effect it had on him, which seemed like I mean, in the way Christopher Nolan talked about this movie, that seemed to be the thing that he was like most interested in. Mm-hmm. And I don't think it came through. And I just feel like sometimes you have to sort of like storyify certain things. I guess it's what you're saying. Know what to tell and what's not worth telling and and like how to order things in a way where the audience is taking away the thing that you want them to take away. It's a movie, right? It's not like a documentary. Well, Aaron Sorkin said 
that when you're doing a biopic, which, you know, is not a documentary at all, he said it is supposed to be a portrait, not a photograph. Yes. And that's like the easiest way to sum it up. It's like you're trying to give someone the impression of what this person was like and what this time was like and what it was like to yes. be there. You're not trying to actually depict it because, I mean, we know for a fact that's not possible. No one has a recording of what happened at Los Alamos. We just don't know. Like, you know, you would have to have all of these guys mic'd 24-7 and, you know, we just yeah, don't know. So don't know. you're yeah. trying to read the historical record, what information we do have, and you're trying to put together a narrative that's going to feel like it should. Right. And yes. distill something important about that moment, which, like you said, Lawrence Arabia does. I would argue Aaron Sorkin's very good at this, actually. If you go and watch his biopic movies, maybe not Charlie Wilson's War, War so much, although it's decent, better than Oppenheimer, certainly. Uh, but his other two are actually fantastic. The Social Network and Steve Jobs are both very good examples of taking something which is frankly way less interesting than Oppenheimer's life. Mm -hmm. Way. I mean, it's not, these are people who really never did anything interesting. Mm -hmm. Like Mark Zuckerberg and Steve Jobs are pretty uninteresting people. Yeah. When you compare them to people who built the atomic bomb. I mean, sure. it's just no, there's no contest, right? Yeah. But you look at the way Aaron Sorkin does it and he does, he embellishes in the right places. He structures things in intelligent ways to make sure that the, the themes that are going to be relevant to this person's life are explored deeply and at the right times and in the right ways. And and he has a climax, too. He mm -hmm. has ways of making it so that the culmination of this movie is about the person and about their decisions and who they are and what they decide. Right. Exactly. And you look at something especially like Steve Jobs. Uh, you look at the writing and you're just like, this is just excellent work because you he almost made something out of nothing. And then you look at Oppenheimer and it's almost the opposite. You're taking something that inherently, mm -hmm. if just if you just read all of American Prometheus or something, you just get this amazing story and hear the adaptation into movie form somehow loses a lot of it. It felt so anticlimactic to Very me. Very much so. Like the whole Trinity test, I was expecting it to feel like this monumentous thing and it was just kind of like, okay. And I, I, that that was really disappointing, honestly. Um the, th the other movie, though, I was going to mention that this that I think this movie needed more of and has a lot of similarities is actually The Wind Rises because oh, very good point. It's about the creation of a of a machine of killing and the and sort of the difference in the intention, you know, in the love of science and engineering versus the what that thing you end up ultimately making will be used for. And I think Miyazaki like manages to. Turn, like he gets to the core of that conflict so beautifully, and it's extremely emotional. And I feel like the comparison is so clear because also I think there's moments in in Oppenheimer where Nolan is like trying to like do stuff that's a little bit artsy, right? Like, and, and I, I and, liked those and parts. I, I wanted the yes, and I'm like I wanted I wanted him to lean into that. Like I really wanted. The Wind Rises version of Oppenheimer, like, Me too. which is more fantastical and like becomes more surreal. I've said this before on other Nolan things. I I wish he could push into that. He's not good at surreal. He's never been good at surreal. That's it's clear in 
Interstellar. It's clear in Inception. Like he seems to struggle with with anything that's not super concrete. And I like that he was trying in this movie, but it just always felt like kind of out of place, honestly, because it was just they would cut, it would come out of nowhere and then it would just go away. And it it just didn't feel like cohesive in this movie. Like I wanted him to really like lean into that and and like let the movie be a little more like subjective and fantastical and and surreal, I guess. The Wind Rises gets actually, it is, I mean, it's animated and it's very surreal. And then there's like, like dream sequences, you know, he goes and he, his, he and what's the, I keep thinking Marconi, but that's the guy who uh, invented the radio. I mean, uh, uh, the, uh, the, the, yes, the Italian, Italian des- airplane um, designer. Oh my whose God. Name Anybody I who forget. knows airplanes will know who this guy is. Do you get these dream sequences where he's talking to like kind of literally having a dialogue with this other character who he's never met mm-hmm. and things like that, which is, you know, Miyazaki is creating opportunities to have things happen that could not and did not happen in the real world. I mean, the entire thing with his wife is totally fictional. It never happened. Yeah. But he's just creating these opportunities to tell an interesting story. And as long as you go into the movie not thinking that you're getting the literal truth, it's a very good um, film about the creative process and sort of the... Uh, the potential uh, conflicts that you have with people who create things that can also be used in ways that that they might not have thought of or not have wanted to have happen. Although, I would also point out, I think The Wind Rises manages to land in a more honest place a little bit about that. Like, it actually isn't very... Like, it doesn't suggest particularly strongly that anything about that per- that that person regretted anything about their life. It kind of is just like this is what happened and mm-hmm. these are the consequences and the person kind of just has to live with those. But yeah. it's not it doesn't like feel very heavy-handed about it at all, right? No, it feels it feels like it manages to capture a sort of like nuance, I guess. Yeah. But it's also sad. Like I think The Wind Rises does this really nice job of tying in the relationship and the loss with the loss of sort of the dream and all that. And I feel it's, like, you yeah. know, there were moments, there were opportunities for that in the real life story of Oppenheimer with the Florence Pugh character. Right. It's like, there's almost, it's almost like the history handed you an opportunity to, to like tie in the loss of something you love with the loss of innocence. Or, you know what I mean? It's like there were, there were things that you could have used narratively if you had wanted to like em- more emotionally connect the feelings that Oppenheimer is supposed to be feeling supposedly you know that to me never really come through very well well so uh, i'll i mean there's a lot of problems with this film in terms of what happens in the writing so uh i guess we'll get into that now sure so uh i'll start by saying that i think that the as usual with a christopher nolan film the directing of the visuals is excellent. Yes. So everything in this movie looked absolutely gorgeous. Yeah, the col- uh, I mean, once again, we talk about modern color grading being awful. This oh, movie doesn't have that problem. Does There's not have that actual problem. colors. It Hooray. looks fantastic. <laughs> uh, I I absolutely enjoyed watching every scene in this movie. It was gorgeous. Looked great. Um. So that part very good. I would, however, say that the rest of the directing, like how people are 
interacting with each other and how the actors are doing things or maybe the choice of the actors, however you want to look at it, I do not think worked very well in this film. I did not feel particularly well connected with uh, Oppenheimer. Me neither. I don't know if that's Killian Murphy's fault or if that's more the fault of the directing or the screenwriting. But I would say that, you know, if we start with the biggest problem that I think this film had, as compared to something like Lawrence of Arabia, like Steve Jobs or The Social Network, like any of those ones that I were just talking about for biopics, and there's a lot of others I'm sure you can mention. I'm not trying to say that those are the only good ones or anything. Sure. Um, is at no point in this movie did I really feel, I almost didn't really feel like Oppenheimer was even the protagonist. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's the easiest way to say it. Yeah. You really don't identify with him. You don't really get a feeling that you know him particularly well throughout any of this. And, you know, that's potentially some, I don't know if it's intentional or not, because maybe he was someone who you're trying to portray as enigmatic. But the problem is an enigmatic person does not make a good protagonist. Enigmatic people can make other things. They can make good antagonists. They can make good sidekicks. They can make good whatever. But if if the audience's primary person they're supposed to identify with and follow is fundamentally someone who they do not connect with, don't understand, and don't really feel like they uh, share the same kind of like hopes and dreams with that person, like understanding what they're going through and how it's going. I think you right there have kind of failed. Like before we even get into like minutia of what, you mm-hmm. know, pacing issues and mm-hmm. whether or not the narrative is what good. And I would point out a lot of things just to try and emphasize just how much I think this wasn't working. Uh, as a simple example, like at the beginning of the movie, Oppenheimer tries to poison his teacher with cyanide, Mm -hmm. which I think kills you. Like, I guess it depends on how much you use, but um, I am told Alan Turing committed suicide successfully with a cyanide apple, for example. Mm. So this is not like, oh, ha ha, the person's going to get sick. this is just straight up like he's going to murder this guy. And I mean, it's just not handled properly in the movie at all. You see, you don't understand why he does it. I mean, basically you see the guy is slightly uh, makes a bad comment to him like was that really it like are you trying to say that in general Oppenheimer just like someone made one bad comment to him one time and then he kills the person like that's a very odd thing to open with that's the first experience we really have with our protagonist um and then the aftermath is also nothing there is no reckoning with this fact that that he tried to kill the person is completely irrelevant to the story. It does not come up again later. doesn't come up again then. Like, I mean, if you think about what that says about your character, it's like it says that they're kind of fine killing people. Well, let me let me con- yeah, yeah, yeah. explain why I think this is important. Yeah. Now, this is a case where somebody literally is and this really happened like uh, to, according to, you know, people who are more familiar with this than I am, obviously, uh, and the book. It's in American Prometheus mm-hmm. as well, right? So it's like that's a that's considered kind of the gold standard, I think, on Oppenheimer. Yeah. So he really did do this. In fact, I think he may have done it twice. This is a case where you have, in the natural history of the guy, basically narrative gold. You have a situation where he started off as a young boy not really thinking about what it means to kill someone. Yes, exactly. This is the perfect opportunity for us to explore that. 
see it more. Does he care or doesn't he after, right? We don't know because it just time skips out of there. I don't know. I don't know how much he considered this. I don't know much how much he hated that guy. I don't know um, if afterwards how much regret he had. Did it affect him? Right, he right. never even talks to somebody else about it. He doesn't have to go to the, you know, the dean of the school, which I, I think actually is what happens in the real version. He gets almost expelled. That should be in this movie. Like, this yeah, is important yeah. character development. Yep. Because later, if he does struggle with what he did with the atomic bomb... This is the perfect contrast. Has he learned anything? Has he changed as a person? Or is he the same person who just put yeah. cyanide in the apple? And so this is such, I mean, I'm sorry to be blunt. This is such bad screenwriting. It fails to recognize the absolute narrative gold that is in here. Mm-hmm. And I'm talking about one freaking scene. Now, look, there are so many things that are they could have done out of all of this amazing stuff that happens. They dwell on none of it. They develop none of it. It's They just kind of splatter it out there. Uh, like, you know how they had those interstitials of the neutrons hitting each other? And yeah, like, yeah, yeah. That's what this film feels like. It's just, we just splattered it out there, and it's like we never figured out how to really dig into anything. Exactly, yeah. There's no emotional connection to anything at any point. And it's a, it's a huge letdown you know, we're talking about the most devastating weapon that has ever existed on Earth, right? And and built by the most amazing collection of people. Yeah, and like, right? and and you know, it's like this movie's way of showing that Oppenheimer is like conflicted is just having him stare blankly and have the background shake. Like that's literally all that Nolan could do to be like he's having a hard time with this. You know what I mean? It's like <laughs> that's not that's not enough, <laughs> right? We need we need more emotional content. We need narrative. Like I that's why I say it's like it feels like more like a documentary or something. But you're making a movie. But a bad documentary, yeah, it's like right? A good like, good documentaries yeah, yeah. also do this. They yeah, yeah. edit things together in an order that helps you understand a story they were trying to tell. Yeah. It doesn't make it more true, but it makes it more what humans understand. Yeah, well, right? this is why I say like I think I think it focused on a lot of the wrong stuff too, like because I think I think Nolan needed to decide what he was wanting to make this movie about. Like, if you want to make this movie about the man Oppenheimer and specifically like the emotional impact of this on him, then I think you need to like probably you need to cut a bunch of the peripheral stuff, the political stuff that's not super relevant, like the Robert Downey Jr. like drama, Mm -hmm. interpersonal stuff. It's not. It doesn't. Like, that part doesn't really matter if if your goal is to talk about the emotional impact, right? And so it's like the movie is bogged down by, like, the, the stupid, like, trial thing and, like, all of the, like, oh, is he a socialist or whatever? Like, I get that all this happened, but it's like if your goal is to tell an emotional story, you're not, you're, you're not doing that. Well, I think there's also, like, a lot of serious problems with juxtaposing these things so closely and you know yeah, in the keep movie breaking the momentum yeah the the movie is kind of has these things interwoven like you you almost start i think like very close to one of the first scenes is him talking to like the uh the inquiry right mm-hmm. and you know one of the problems with this is that to someone who is enmeshed in enmeshed in politics 
obviously that stuff all mattered a great deal. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm sure it mattered a great deal to Strauss. I'm sure it mattered, mattered a great deal to Oppenheimer. I'm sure it mattered to all of the people who were involved in the actual politics because sure. that's their day-to-day, and who does and doesn't have power in Washington is incredibly important. And it it is incredibly important, even in the grand scheme, in that it affects all of our lives as to what these how these decisions are made. So that's all true, but the problem is that Unless you are doing something like a TV show where that kind of machinations is going on across 10 hours, 20 hours, the audience isn't going to understand these things. It's what we see in Oppenheimer is so brief. It doesn't I don't even I mean, I'm having to use my intellectual understanding from outside the movie of how politics works and why this might be to even understand why they thought anyone would care about seeing him lose his security <laughs> clearance. Because in the context of the movie, you're like, who cares if he loses his security clearance? Exactly. Like, it doesn't he, seem relevant. It's like, who cares? Exactly. It's yeah. like... Um, so, so, you know, this movie is trying to set that up as the climax and the, the, the back ha- uh, the back 30 minutes at least or 45 oh, minutes. Oh, no, it felt like... To me, it felt like half the movie. It could it be. It literally felt like the Trinity thing was like the halfway point. It could be. And then it just like meandered for a while. It was very strange to me. I that, don't know exactly how yeah. long it was, but it was very long. It it's was. a significant part of a three-hour movie. At least a half an hour, possibly an hour. I'd say I don't an hour. Know. I'd say an hour easily. Um, yeah. But when you look at that, you're just like... The people who are watching this movie understand the bomb. They understand the atomic weapon, right? That's what they see as impactful and relevant immediately. That this thing was getting dropped on real people and blowing them up. And it's an amazing scientific achievement. And it's a terrible humanitarian crisis that could happen now at any time, too, right? It's Mm -hmm. like only two were ever dropped. I mean, on people. But we don't know the history hasn't done yet like these things could could cause that that could have only been the beginning when we look back Mm -hmm. on human history it could be what we think of as the greatest nuclear uh sort of holocaust in history may have been nothing right compared to what's coming so when you contextualize it like that you're just like why do I care about someone losing their security clearance it's the movie has raised the stakes way too high by the middle of the film, we've already bombed Hiroshima and Nagasaki. That's the end of the atrocities of the nuclear era, really. It's over now. Mm-hmm. So how do we, how are we supposed to now think that the climax of this film hinges on somebody's government I know. Yeah. stated? It it's just, so stupid. It just doesn't make sense. And so I think that's just a fundamental error as well of pacing. Again, I don't think it matters because I think this movie had already it already lost the the idea when it decided not to focus on actually developing what's going on with the character. So even if you just cut that part out and focus a little bit more on trees, I still don't think it fixes the film. No, it would it still be doesn't. better, but it wouldn't fix the film. I mean, I think it could solve it, or not solve, but it might help some of that feeling of like anticlimacticness where there's this build up to the Trinity test. And then it's just kind of like a big explosion. Like, didn't even feel that big. I, like, it just, I don't know. Like, literally the trailer for this movie is way more effective than the movie. Well, I think, so the other uh, aspect of this movie that I thought was disappointing for me personally 
was there are, I mean, if you go read books about this, if you read Richard Feynman's memoirs, you can read those, you can read American Prometheus, you can read any number of things about the Manhattan Project. Mm -hmm. The number of actual awesome science stories that are in there is just immeasurable. I mean, there's so many things, just Richard Feynman, like just the things that Richard Feynman recounts in his memoir, like uh, they had him, he, he was in it for like two seconds. They basically said like, hey, uh, don't put, you know, put on your glasses. And he's like, nah, the glass will block the UV. He's just sitting in the car. That's Richard Feynman. There's all sorts of stuff. Like he go, like uh, he, he, uh, they, they have a little checkpoint, right? And there's a, uh, you have to go through this checkpoint and show your security clearance, but there's the, the fence only goes mm-hmm. like a little ways around it. So uh, he kept walking just around the fence instead of going through the security checkpoint. And then when he'd come back, they would kept getting mad at him. Right. And uh, so there's stuff like that. There's hundreds of those. Right. And so there's so many interesting moments you could have had if you just did like we get the band together and we go to Los Alamos and all these guys are doing amazing stuff. And the science is really interesting. And we spend more time with that. And we spend more time with each of these personalities and see who they are. And then the bomb goes off and they realize what they've done. And how does each of them yep. do it? This would be an amazing movie, well, you right? Know what? And it, it, another movie we've watched in the movie club, like, because at that point, it's sort of a war movie. You do the war movie thing. Yeah. You treat these, you, you know, you you spend time with these men. You get to know them. You get to you get to feel like there's this, yeah. this like, camaraderie, this team. It's like Das Boat, I was thinking of. Because then the, yeah. you think about the feeling of the end of that movie. Yes. And the gut punch of it. And, like, this movie needed the gut punch. Like, it needed that that feeling of, like, oh, my God. Right? Like. Das Boat is, yeah, like a perfect example of how to spend a bunch of time with people and like be invested in what they're doing and then then you like kind of realize as you pull out you kind of emotionally realize like but what they're doing is horrible and they're going to meet a horrible end as a result of it and all of these things and it just it was I mean, it was great, and it had to do it. I mean, it was talking about the Nazis, so it had to have a very delicate hand. Well, Still like, managed to pull yeah. all of that I off. I mean, it's right? like you, you're talking about humanizing in, in Das Boot, like, like actual Nazis. Literal Nazis, and, yeah. And I mean, the amount that they believed in any given cause is part of the movie. But it's yeah. like you're humanizing people who, if you just said what they did... You, your brain is going to think a certain thing. Right. And it's like Oppenheimer's the same way, right? It's like we need to humanize... You this need to man see these people and these people and what they thought of this first and while they were doing it and then did they have a change of heart and why mm-hmm. and, and like, none of it comes across. And like, we need to feel the gut punch of their their moment of realization of the consequences of what they've done and like all it's like you know you hear they've dropped the bombs and it's just like they get a phone call and it's announced over the thing and it's like I never felt anything like I I never felt anything during this movie. Me neither. Yeah. And it's a real shame because, like you said, the history is so fascinating and so, the story of what happened is already, without having made it into an actual, like, dramatized version, is already fascinating and amazing and interesting. And yeah. it's like, this movie somehow manages to make it less interesting. And and the science isn't in it either. Yeah, like, I was going like to say, the- too, with, the, with like, the the one thing that, the Wind Rises also was, manages to do... I was literally going to yeah, say that. Yeah. It's like you feel... You don't have to know how to be an engineer. Yes. And you feel what he feels. Like you feel 
what it feels like to be on another level of making stuff and dreaming and, and thinking of these amazing things. And Oppenheimer does the thing that I feel like it's a common thing that happens with like genius movies yeah. where they're like, just have him write a bunch of equations yeah. on the chalkboard and he's so brilliant. It's like, that, that's not a thing. Like that's not, that's not how you communicate. Oh, this guy is brilliant. You don't just have him writing equations on a chalkboard. Doesn't do anything for me emotionally. It, it really is an issue, and this is a thing that The Wind Rises did amazingly. The dream sequences where he's imagining the plane and he's imagining the struts mm-hmm. not working because that's mm-hmm. what he's working on right now and what happens to the plane and over and over and stuff. Yeah. It just – it's exactly – I mean, I do work on technical problems for a living, and he – even though Miyazaki doesn't, it's so clear that, like – the way he works on art is actually quite technical in that way. It's the same process for him. It's like he's he's imagining this thing that he wants to achieve, and it it's like he's imagining it falling apart and having to put it back. And, yeah. and that uh, empathy that he has as a result for engineering is just beautiful, and it comes across on the screen. Yeah, the, and the, for some reason, uh, Christopher Nolan can't seem to do that. He can't seem to... Uh, make that empathy from like what it's like to have to make a film. I'm sure there are lots of things about making films that analogize properly yeah. to the act of doing engineering and science, but he just couldn't do it. Like he couldn't yeah. quite I manage mean, it. Closest, I don't know why. The closest he gets is right toward the very beginning when Oppenheimer is like laying in bed and we're cutting to these interesting sort of shots of like particles and whatever like yeah. you know i know that was all practical stuff that they did to get those shots like ping pong balls on i don't know on wires or something but and it's like there's already even with just that there's already this like disconnect where he's just it's like cut back and forth back and forth and it's it's just not surreal enough but it's like the closest that we probably got to like trying to get into that like elevated state of like what's What's it like to be Oppenheimer, right? Well, I think The Wind Rises also trusts the audience. I mean, yeah. it's literally scenes about, like, we're designing the bolts that we put into the plane. Like, like it actually discusses the minutiae. And in this movie, it never trusts the audience enough to do that. It's mm-hmm. like, you know, uh, I mean, the the closest they got was the atmosphere igniting thing where, where Teller comes in and he's got his, you know, mm-hmm. initial equations. But all it is is, like, they say that it might, and then someone else says we redid the calculus, well, and also, it won't. It's That's also it. Like, like, it's also <laughs> kind of silly because it's like he comes in with a sheet of paper and he's like, look at this. And everyone looks at it and immediately is like, this can't be right. Like, I don't think that's how it works. Like, I don't think you just, like, look at an equation and uh, in two seconds and think, like, it's like well, you're, like, getting a note that just says, like, the atmosphere will explode or something. Like, it's just, I don't know. It just felt so, like, hollow and fake and weird. I don't know. And, I mean, that's a perfect time for someone to go up to a blackboard and be like, you know, it's like here's what's going to happen. It's what you know, like that, and like draw out the reveal because the, the audience, thing, the audience doesn't know yet, like what he's discovered. And then, yeah, like as Teller should go up to it. it yeah, yeah. He, sh- he should be like, I did this stack right, and he's like, here's the thing. We know that this rate is here. This that this that and the other thing. If these molecules go at this rate, the atmosphere, and, and then he's like, and here's the problem. And they're just looking like, so what? It's like we are all know this. Is like if the atmosphere has this much in it, it could release enough of these to keep going. Mm-hmm. And everyone's like, oh shit. 
right? Yeah. You know what I mean? And so, yeah. you know, that that should have been in the movie. Exactly. Like, that is the science being interesting. You can dramatize it. You don't have to literally write out the wave equations or whatever that I wouldn't exactly. understand either. Exactly, exactly. Uh, it's just like, you know... Get it in the get the act of doing this scientific work into the film in a way that is exciting. Wind Rises does this. Oppenheimer can't manage it, and I don't understand why. I also fundamentally did not give a crap at all about Oppenheimer's love life at any time during this film. I think probably because it just didn't seem relevant to anything. I mean, we spent a tremendous amount of time with him going to parties and meeting women and doing stuff, and I, that was a big part of his character, so I understand why it's in the movie, but it didn't really matter much to me I ever. Mean, yeah, it's like, at most, it just makes you kind of, like, think he's a piece of shit, and... and Which is fine, because he was, I mean, he was a womanizer, yeah, but, that's but true. I think, but it doesn't, uh, it doesn't tie in in any no. interesting way to anything. Like, I understand you don't want to, like... You don't want to necessarily create like a fake image of a person. Like as I've my my favorite thing about like Lawrence of Arabia is that like I guess it's like the photograph versus painting thing is it's like, you know, you're taking your own understanding of who this person is and and showing that. But in doing so, you're capturing some amount of like the essence of probably what's important to understand about that person. Like you'll never know who that person ever actually was, right? The most you can do is try to communicate the, to the best of your ability your understanding or what you think is important to understand about that person, right? So it's like, well, what you is, can, it's what also is, okay to tell slices, right? It's like yes, yeah. you can tell the scientific story of Los Alamos, you can tell the human story of Oppenheimer, you can pick what you're telling. You don't have but, to. T- you don't have to have every detail of the person's life. Right. It's, it's almost does the uh, has the opposite effect of providing some sort of like clarity it 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 makes it muddier yes like it obviously like if you don't include various things internet scum will come and complain about it sure. like you know if you made a, a a movie about Oppenheimer and didn't include the womanizing or made a movie about Alan Turing and didn't include that he was gay or something like this people who don't understand what, how art works will come and complain but forget those people like if you know what you are talking about right then you know whether you're making a thing about Alan Turing's identity or his work. And you can choose to focus on one or the other and not have very much content about the other side of those things, right? You, as an artist, have to know what you're doing. Like, you're telling a story. You're using this person as a tool, sort of, to tell a story. And and the things you want to say, you use parts of that person's life and our understanding of who they were yes. to tell a certain story. Yes. And I think Nolan seemed to not have a good like f- handle or like he it seems like he didn't ha- he didn't have like that focus yes. of what exactly he was trying to say about what who knows. He didn't like, seem to understand the character enough to know because it could be that in the story that you want to tell the that all of Oppenheimer's relationships are very important. Yeah. And that would be fine. Sure. But in this movie, it's like, I just don't know. Like, they kind of, I can think of a couple, like, factual reasons they were. Like, because you chose to talk a lot about the hearings, then obviously his relationship with Gene Tatlock was very important. But I didn't really feel like I cared. Like, I mean, I agree that that 
technically is true, but it's like, I don't know why it's in the movie. Like, it doesn't really feel like it belongs in the movie mm-hmm. because it just wasn't handled uh, in a way that that actually created the drama that would have where I would have said, oh, clearly that's why we're developing this fact that he had this relationship with this person. And then later it comes back and it's an issue and a hearing. OK, I get it. Uh, feels mm-hmm. feels right. Feels impactful. I understand it's in the movie. Right. And so or, just in general, I'd say or like, you tie it to <clears throat> you tie his relationship with Gene Tatlock to like the bomb. You yeah. tie it. Which he kind of tried to do, but it just yeah. doesn't, it doesn't work. work. It doesn't um, work at all. Yeah. And I think, like, I don't know, maybe, I mean, that's probably the best way to say most of these complaints, right? It's just like, I can't complain about any one thing in this movie because I don't know what this movie was supposed to be doing. And yeah. so I'd have to first know what you wanted to do. And then I could say the hearings are out of place mm-hmm. or it should be, right? I don't know. Maybe the hearings weren't out of place. Maybe the, the what the story was trying to tell is a story of Oppenheimer getting screwed by these government functionaries. Okay, we can tell that story, but if that's the case, we got to get rid of a lot of the earlier stuff and change the way we're doing that. And we probably just tell the story of the hearings, and we use mostly just like quick little flashbacks, things that happen or something. Mm-hmm, like, we need mm-hmm. to really change the that's focus. Why it's like it's like two movies squished together. It's. 12 movies squished sure. together, right? But, I don't yeah. even know. And so, you know, I, I do think that that in general is a problem, especially for criticism of the movie, is I don't really necessarily even know where to start sometimes because I don't know what you were trying to do. And so the biggest complaint just overall is actually that, that coming out of this movie, I don't know what story you were trying to tell. Yeah, it, it's so funny because, like, my initial feelings, like, coming out of the movie – was that I didn't have any f- feelings. Like, I was just like, <clears throat> I don't really know what to think about that experience. Like, it was just kind of like, uh, you know? Like, it wasn't It was, It was. wasn't strongly negative either. It was just kind of, like, indifferent, which is not very good. <laughs> uh, well, and I do think that that is a thing that, you know, so when I when I compare this movie to Dunkirk, which was the other Christopher Nolan mm-hmm. film that— Which is that, much better. —historical and I think went well. I mean, when yeah. you watch it, you're like, hmm— Dunkirk is also fairly indifferent. It, mm-hmm. it it does sort of have that feeling of a detached lens, like we're we're kind of stepped back a little bit from these characters. We're not deeply emotionally invested in them, mm-hmm. but because it's a natural, just like following of the events uh, that that happened to various soldiers in this war, that feels okay. Mm-hmm. I don't need to know, like you know, where this kid grew up or that he never wanted to be a soldier Mm -hmm. or what, you know, I don't need to know those things because the way that the movie works is just in having a visceral presence in a wartime that lets you feel the cacophony Mm -hmm. of that. And I didn't need to personally deeply connect with any one person to have that happen. This movie can't get away with that. Uh, it's just fundamentally not that kind of a film. I mean, it's literally called Oppenheimer. It's it's about mm-hmm. or supposed to be about yeah. this man. And like for me, the most interesting thing about Oppenheimer is the impact of creating the most devastating weapon that has ever existed on Earth. Like I wanted, I wanted to see that dealt with emotionally. I, I wanted I, to feel that, and I and I never felt that. I have American Prometheus, and I am going to read it, but my eyesight is too poor to read the type. <laughs> that was the problem. I need to order reading glasses. Literally, my eyesight was too is so tiny. I need to order reading glasses, so I have not read it yet. However, I would like to read it for the following reason. I mean, I'm sure it will be interesting in its own right. It's supposed to be a very good book. But 
after watching the movie Oppenheimer, I have absolutely no idea, none, how J. Robert Oppenheimer actually felt about building the bomb. Zero. Yes, I agree 100%. I, I came away from this movie literally having no idea. Yep. Now, maybe we don't know how he felt about it, but I just... Don't know. Well, I don't as know I've if said, that's I think true. Nolan is trying to sort of say th- that he's having some sort of emotional response, like by just having dead eyes, yeah, with a shaking background. Like literally, that's that's. I think that's the way that uh, that Nolan is trying to say that he is like deeply disturbed. And we have, you know, a few interesting sort of moments where he's like seeing the people around him, sort of as though they've been part of this nuclear like caught in this nuclear blast. I think I think some of that stuff is getting somewhere a little interesting. Like at least it's pushing a little bit into like being more artistic. Well, so I really liked that scene yeah. if it was taken separately. So if I just think about that scene where everyone is so excited to see him and they're all stamping their feet on the bleachers and he goes in yeah. and he tries to start giving the speech but he starts seeing like the faces of the people melting and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was great. I thought it was a fantastic scene. Yeah. It just doesn't work in the context of this movie because it's like the only information we get. Yeah. And unfortunately, while that's a start to something, you could start there uh, exploring how this person feels. You can't end there. And it basically does. Yeah. It's like, yeah. that's it. So we don't know like, okay, that's a thing. This person imagining the horrors of this weapon uh, inflicted upon the people around him. That's a good start. But I still don't know what he feels about it. Did he, he feels like it was necessary because the Germans were building one? Does he feel like it was their fault? Was it his fault? How personally responsible does he feel? Does he feel he shouldn't have done it? Or does he think he still needed to? Right? I don't know. Um, my favorite character in this movie, by far, by far, was Edward Teller. I thought the guy who played Edward Teller was absolutely fantastic. And every scene that I liked, that I thought actually worked in this film, mm-hmm. had him in it, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, he had more character, like more personality. And, and it, felt like, it felt like we understood yeah. a lot better where he was at. And he actually asked this question. Mm-hmm. He asks Oppenheimer, mm-hmm. he's like, how do you feel about it? And he doesn't have a response. Right. He says something like, you know, well, it's the peace, you know, peace or something. It's like a kind of really trite thing. And Edward Teller has the only good line in that conversation, which is until someone builds a bigger bomb. It's a great line. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it kind of felt like actually I I kind of identified more with Teller than anyone in the movie. He, he sort of was written in a way to have his character was more consistent than everyone else. Like he sort of had an opinion and you could see how he was, what his attitude was like. Mm -hmm. And despite the fact that he had very fractional screen time compared to Oppenheimer, I actually sort of felt like I knew what he felt. Mm -hmm. It's like, he's a person who thinks this thing is very dangerous, but we have to build it and forever. Mm -hmm. Like that was his opinion. He's like, we're going to have to build this and we're going to have to build Bigger and bigger ones. That's the only thing, right? Right, and it's not like um, it's, it's not like he thinks it's a good thing. He doesn't it's think just, it's a good it's thing. It's just the way the world works. He thinks it's a thing we're yeah, gonna do, yeah. and like that's the only option, right? Yep. Um, and he didn't like Oppenheimer's opinions on that, and didn't really understand them. Which, by the way, I don't either, right? Uh, so you know, I don't know. I'm not sure how much there more there is to say about that aspect of the film because it's just like, yeah, until I knew what you were trying to say with this movie, which I really just don't. 
I don't know. All I can say is the collection of scenes that you put in didn't work, but I think those scenes were made very well, so I don't think it's a problem of production. It's just the choice of scenes is not working. It's so interesting because I've heard... So some of the things I've heard about this movie, one is that the script was written in, like, the first person, so it's Oppenheimer saying, like, I, which is unusual for a script. Whoa. Um... Because there's the black and white sections and the color sections. I interpreted that as like Oppenheimer's perspective versus other. I think it's a Nolan has said it's supposed to be subjective versus objective. I think that's kind of stupid because it feels like all the Strauss Strauss Strauss. What? Yeah, this is in black and white. Is not objective. Uh, it didn't feel objective at felt, all. I mean, he literally felt like a cartoon villain. If you had told me objective versus subjective was the two breakdown between the two. I would have guessed the it black the and white was the subjective one, but apparently that's not true. I'm assuming, but maybe maybe I'm wrong about that, but I'm pretty sure he meant the black and white was the objective thing. Because, yeah, like the straw stuff sounds... Super, yeah. Like nuts. But like, in the like Oppenheimer stuff... Chances that his aide said that to him? No, it, it feels I, like... Maybe, it, I, don't I don't know, know. like, seems unlikely. I know. So in any case, I don't think that any of that came through as intended. No, it didn't. And I've also heard. I never thought that. I've, I've heard. At any I, you time. know, I think there, there were, like I, I before the movie, I did read there was a uh, Nolan quote where he was like, "People are coming out of the movie feeling like devastated, like nope. in horror, like it's a horror movie." Was not. And I was like, "That's awesome!" Like I hope that's true. Yeah. And it, it's not anything close to that. I felt nothing, and I. I wanted it to feel like a horror movie. I wanted it to have the DOS boat ending where you come out and you're just like, I feel terrible. Like, I wanted that. Um, and I, it, that definitely is not the experience of this movie. I didn't have any expectations going into the movie. And like I've said, I, I mean, about what I would be feeling. Yeah. I, I was hoping it would be a good movie. Right. Yeah. Um, and it, you know, it half was, half wasn't. It was a very well made film. And I really enjoyed watching it. Like, oh, totally. when yeah, I was yeah, in yeah. the theater, I, I was like, I was not sad I went. I know some people went to Barbie, some people went to Oppenheimer, some people went to both. I'm quite sure that if I go on to Barbie, I'd be sitting here complaining about how this is like an absolute garbage film based on the <laughs> things I've heard about it so far. But so I'm not doing that. Uh, this was probably the right choice for me, all things considered, mm-hmm. although I'm sure we'll see Barbie at some point for the movie club and maybe I won't. Maybe we'll like it. I just knowing previously Greta Gerwig, I'm like, eh. Yeah. So I'm thinking if she's tackling something like Barbie, I'm just like, oh, my God, this is going to be <laughs> bad. right? But who knows? Yeah. Um, but for Oppenheimer, it's like, yeah, I really enjoyed watching the movie. I felt like it was just great to see. I mean, as and- we said with Nolan before, you know, he's a great filmmaker in a lot of respects. He really is. His movies look fantastic. They do. There's a love of cinema. It comes through. Um, I think the acting was very good. Maybe. I don't know well, about I guess it's hard Oppenheimer. To say. I don't know if Killian Murphy was doing a great job or not. I mean, I don't know what he was supposed to be doing. He certainly looked the part. He definitely did. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know. I just, I mean, because we both saw it in IMAX. You saw IMAX 70 millimeter. I saw IMAX I saw laser. 1570, thank you. Um, and so we both saw like really nice versions of the movie yeah but unfortunately i just like i wanted to see more artistic liberties taken i guess that's probably what i wanted more of i don't know i don't have a prescription for how you make this movie better personally i I, 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 I think i just say this all the time about nolan it's my like it's the thing I, i come away from like most maybe i have not done kirk but the rest of his movies thinking is like i really wish this guy could just like be a little more artsy for example the scene in the um 
where they're asking him about, um, oh my God, Florence Pugh's game. Gene Tatlock. They're, they're, they're asking him about Gene Tatlock, and suddenly he's sitting there, like, naked, yeah. and then she's, like, yeah. then they're, like, having sex, like, yeah. right there. Like, you know, I, I kind of get, I guess, what you're going for. It's like he's feeling totally exposed, and, and like, this this relationship is on display for all these people to see. But at the same time, it's like there's not enough of that surreal stuff in this movie. It's a little too spare. And, it, and it, so it ends up just feeling like kind of out of place and odd. And I have no problem with that kind of thing. I just wish that maybe the movie had done more of that. Like lean into that. Right. Make the movie more interesting. Have some stuff like that now. Because like that's actually a scene where maybe you can actually understand what Oppenheimer's feeling. In that moment, right? Maybe, except it turns out it's his wife who's looking at it. So you don't really know if it's supposed to be him who's having this feeling yeah, or yeah, her yeah, yeah, or yeah. both. Yeah. So you're just like, I guess. But like, even that, right, doesn't mm-hmm. quite work. What you should have probably done is had it so that from the wife's, when you shot from back, from behind, that he's naked. When you shot from the front, he was clothed. Then you would know that it's her who's imagining it right. or, or the opposite, opposite. of those yeah, yeah, two yeah. things. And so like, but it seemed like they were mostly talking about the wife because she then has the thing about like where he confronts him afterwards. I don't know. There's a lot of things <laughs> I don't know. And again, it's just mostly this just ended up being disappointing because if I'd gone into it expecting Interstellar, I would just have gotten what I expected, right? Because That's what it is. It's another one of those movies that's, like, very well made and the story just doesn't work. You know, I weirdly, I think I enjoyed Interstellar more. I think Interstellar is actually a better, a more effective movie. I I can't can't get there for you with that one. You know, I guess I would say, yeah, they're similar. They're similar. I think the, the pacing issues of Oppenheimer were worse. Like Interstellar, Interstellar has did a better, not have as bad better, pacing. It has like sure. a better momentum to it. It feels more like a normal movie. If it that... still has some of those weird pacing issues, like uh, yes. with the back, the people living in the dust bowl thing, and they're not wanting to move it's the true, house and it's that true, crap. It's, it's true. got the same problem of like he's like can't he doesn't know what to focus on. More isn't necessarily better. Is yeah. I think the yeah. problem. Yeah. It's like sometimes less is more. Focus is important, and if you just throw arbitrarily money much crap in. Mm-hmm. It doesn't make a better movie. It just makes a longer movie. Yeah. Usually that ends up being worse. Um, so I don't know. Here's one thing I will say. This movie has no action sequences at all. Christopher Nolan's famously bad at editing action sequences. He never seems to be able to establish where things are or even keep them going in the same directions from shot to shot. Mm-hmm. Right. This is like a very common thing. You can go on YouTube and watch, you know, an editor dissect like all the problems with like the Batman joker uh scene where he's riding in the back of the tractor trailer truck and that stuff or Mm -hmm. whatever this movie has no action scenes and yet he literally has the same error that he makes with action sequences in this film he cannot escape it at the beginning of the movie strauss is inviting oppenheimer to the institute for advanced study i think at princeton okay i think that's what's happening in the scene yeah yeah I think they're in print. I don't know why, because Albert Einstein's on down by the water, and I, mm-hmm. so that's where he would be. He's at the Institute for Advanced Studies, so he's he's in Princeton, New Jersey, right? Uh, Strauss says, "Do you want to meet Einstein?" And mm-hmm. and like Oppenheimer's like, "I've known him for years," which is a fun line. Mm-hmm. They go down to the water, and Oppenheimer walks up to Einstein. 
We cut back and we see Strauss. Mm-hmm. And he's like right there. The next cut mm-hmm. is Albert Einstein walking away from Oppenheimer. It looks like Einstein refused to talk to Oppenheimer. Yes. Right? Yes. Because Christopher Nolan forgot to include a shot of them yes. talking to each yes. other. Yes. Right? 100%. And I thought that was intentional. Like It wasn't. But then, but then you get to the end of the movie and you're like. They did talk. And yeah, and, oh my God. So even that he couldn't do. Like, if he just doesn't understand editing for some reason, it's like he doesn't understand what that the things he knows are happening, the audience doesn't know. The audience doesn't know that Oppenheimer and Einstein talked there. Mm-hmm. You have to show them yeah, the hug the- each other yeah. or do something so you can see that they are on good terms. And then you have to show Einstein turn. Mm-hmm somewhat happy or at least not dejected, see Strauss and just like walk by him or whatever. Yeah, because right? I mean, unless unless the idea was that... You have to I mean, do... The scene has to show I mean, the actual thing. You can't just write it on the page and know that it happened. It doesn't work that way. Yeah. No, I, I do think it's unclear what Nolan... Because I, I think it's possible Nolan was trying to mislead the audience into thinking that Einstein was really unhappy about something that Oppenheimer... Like, uh, was mad at Oppenheimer... I don't see why because But I don't see why. Yeah, exactly. It's like but I kind of think that I mean it's the only way you can interpret that scene. So it seems to me as though that was intentional. Um No, I think he just doesn't understand maybe, editing. Maybe, I mean yeah. he does this all the time in other movies yeah. where there's no reason to mislead the audience obviously. Well, and yeah, in this movie in this movie I would go one further. Not only is there no reason to mislead the audience about this in this in this film. It's crucial that the audience think that's what happened because the ending of the movie is supposed to match the beginning of the movie right, and, then and it's s- supposed to resolve the fact that what they talked about was not something about Strauss. That's crucial to the ending of the film. Yeah. So it's like, it's not only is it, imp- is it not that I think he was trying to misdirect, I think he was trying to have you come away with the impression that Einstein snubbed Strauss in that scene because he resolves it later as if that's a big resolve. So it can't be that he wanted you to think that it was about Oppenheimer. That doesn't make any sense because the ending of the movie, you have to have interpreted the first scene the way I just said in order for it to work. Right, because I definitely didn't interpret it as him being, having an issue with Strauss. Like, right. I definitely, how could you? Until later, until the very, um, close to the very last scene when Strauss is like telling the story. Yeah. Because it's like, you see that scene and then they have a conversation and I was like, oh, I never realized they actually had a conversation. I thought... Exactly. I thought he just saw Oppenheimer and, and then left him. Imme- and snubbed him and left immediately. But there's yeah. no way that's what... That that cannot, simply cannot be what was intended because we know from the ending that he intended you to have thought the other thing. Yeah. yeah. Right? Yeah. He intended you to think Strauss was snubbed. Otherwise, the thing the aide says to him doesn't resolve anything. Exactly. Right? Yep. Because we already don't think that that's what... <laughs> Right, it's like you learn it, you learn that's what yeah. you're supposed to have thought so happened, thought, and then it gets yes. resolved within like it's, 30 seconds. It's very yeah. clear that Christopher Nolan thought we all saw one thing, but we diff- definitely didn't yeah. see that thing. I mean, I think this is, that's fundamentally like, that's the thing that's difficult in narrative storytelling, right? Is like understanding what the viewer is understanding. Like, yes, it's critically it, it's, important that you understand that. It's extremely that. difficult to do, but it's like, you know, the, 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 at this level, when you've got so many people involved with a thing, it feels like someone should have noticed that. I don't know. It was weird. I agree. Yeah. So anyway, that's that. I, we didn't mention at all uh, Matt Damon, I guess. He actually did a reasonable job. I don't think he was particularly well cast for that role to play like a large, fat, 
uh, gruff general, but he did all right. Yeah, I mean, um, I, I think I think he did fine. I didn't have any. It was the least of this movie's problems. Mm-hmm. If that was a miscast, so it's fine. Um, I don't I don't think it was. Yeah. I mean, I don't know what the actual guy was supposed to be like, but I think I, I liked Matt Damon's sort of role. I think huge, fat, always eating candy bars. That wasn't uh, in the movie. No, it wasn't. Um, they, they I, don't... I mean, it would have made it probably would have made the the character more interesting and uh, and very like, uh, yeah, domineering, I guess. I don't know. I yeah. don't know that much about him. Leslie Groves is the guy. Yeah. Um, I will say unrelated to the movie. But this is actually the first time I went to a theater since COVID, before mm, COVID. Mm. I just forgot how awful audiences are. Oh. So my audience I will say my audience at least. It's probably because it was 1570, good. so they were serious. So like at the beginning of the movie, the projectionist guy is like, we had people at the earlier screenings taking their phones out to record the nuclear blast. Don't do that. And I didn't see anybody do that, thankfully, but just the fact that people had done that was like super depressing. And then on top of that, there was like two people, at least two couples around me who kept talking to each other during the movie. And <laughs> and like, to be honest, it probably didn't help my viewing experience. Like I, right. I, I was probably less immersed than I would have been. Yeah. Um, and I was just like, this sucks. Like, why are people awful? I did not have that experience. That may just be because no one was near me and doing that time. But but the audience was very well behaved as far as I could tell. What I will say is as far as I can tell, is doing a lot of work here. Because one thing we did not mention mm-hmm. in this movie, <clears throat> or rather about this movie, is the music. Oh, my God. <laughs> which I thought was actively the worst music I've been subjected to in a film ever. Not because there was something overtly horrible about the composition, but because it was mixed so aggressively, All so thing. often, so loud, Dude. that I, I like couldn't freaking... Like, hear half the stuff did that was see, happening. It was awful. Did you see? You probably haven't seen this yet. No. Red Letter Media posted a Christopher Nolan's Twelve Angry Men. <laughs> no. Oh, and I have to see that. Yes, and it's just oh. it's just that music oh, playing God. really loudly over scenes from Twelve Angry Men, and it's amazing. I gotta see it's that. It's amazing. It's so bad. It's it's just like it's the <clears> most <throat> baffling choice. I mean, the music isn't good. Like, it's not good music. I don't think in general it's pretty boring, but it's not horrible just on its own. No. So I don't mean to impugn the actual quality of the literal music, but the actual mix and choice of where it goes and what is being played. Because it's like Mm -hmm. no matter what is being played, it's like the most aggressive loud strings you've ever heard. No matter what is happening, like if two people are quietly discussing something or a nuclear bomb is going off or whatever it is, the only choice was extremely loud, well, the aggressive nuclear bomb strings. going off was actually silence. It was like the yeah, only silent part, part of the movie. Yeah. And I was like, that's good. That's yeah. nice. It was so noticeable because of how yeah. oppressive the music had been up until that point. And so I wish they could have gotten rid of this music uh, and replaced it with something more subtle that actually matched the mood and was quiet where it needed to be and louder when it should have been rather than just always loud or not there. Like, louder silence was all I also had. think it gives the movie this weird, like, superficial feeling, too, because yeah. it's just the music is so unrelated to what's going on that it's almost like you're watching some weird, like montage thing yeah. put to music yeah. that's not a movie but it's yeah. like a montage of a movie do yeah. you know what I mean it's very it's weird and Nolan seems to have this thing with that 
And it works sometimes. Uh, like I thought in Interstellar, the music was actually very good and very Maybe, effective. Yeah. And it was definitely oppressive. But it like there were some scenes in that movie where it was like it really meshed well. I, I think Dunkirk is probably similar. I actually don't remember the music part of Dunkirk very well. I do remember that they there was like a nod to like Elgar and stuff in it. There was, was a lot of like ticking, but... like like and the what ticking, clock ticking, 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 and it was yeah, yeah. Pre- that and was good. It was effective. Like I think the there. It's not that it's like always bad to have that yeah. approach depending on what the movie is. But yeah, in this movie it's just like odd. Yeah, it's like the furthest thing from like a sensitive John Williams score as you could possibly mm-hmm. imagine. Like it seems to at no time other than like you said when it's not there, which was actually much better when mm-hmm. it wasn't. Uh it's at no time did it seem to match what was happening on the screen. Mm-hmm. It was just loud string music. Yep. Oppressive. Just yeah. There. Yeah, and it, it, it like didn't seem to correlate to anything I was seeing, and it was very noticeably jarring. And it also just felt like it's like it's almost like a crutch in a way, where it's like we don't know how to make conversations between scientists feel like monumentous, so we're just gonna play this really like dramatic, loud, oppressive music over it, so like it feels somehow more intense than it is. Maybe, but I, I mean, I would actually say that it's kind of almost doing the opposite. It's making these conversations feel less immersive because it's so one note I agree. that I can't actually yeah. right. No, no, so I, it didn't actually that, work as a crutch. I agree that, that it, it doesn't work in that way, yeah. but I, I almost I, it feels like that was the intent or Maybe, something. Maybe, I don't know. To like make it feel more intense. Like lack of confidence basically in the... Yeah. yeah. Like why else would you do it? I don't know, man. I don't know. Anyway, so yeah, I would say overall, um, I I liked watching Oppenheimer because I thought it looked really good and yeah. I liked looking at the movie. Uh, Although I will say I, st- I did find myself getting kind of tuned out slash bored during the last probably like half an hour, hour when it was all the straw stuff. The straw stuff is far less interesting. It was like, because it's like the most interesting part of the movie at that point had already happened. So, uh, but in terms of like actual great film, not even close, Snowware in the ballpark. It just, he needs a screenwriter. I know. He just, he desperately needs a screenwriter. He can't do it. He's horrible He's at it. He's not good at it, yeah. And, uh, you know, I just, it's a real missed opportunity because he does all the rest of the parts very well. The editing... Weird mishaps aside, the actual production of the scenes is fantastic. The movies look amazing. Oh my god! Like what a missed opportunity if he just if he had Aaron Sorkin to write this movie. The Aaron Sorkin Oppenheimer directed by Christopher Nolan would be a fucking masterpiece. I mean, it would be insane. It would it probably would be so good. good. It would be so good. But it's yeah. like nope. If he keeps writing his own movies, he will never he will end never up with a make masterpiece. A great movie. Yeah, and he could. Dunkirk's probably his peak. At that, at, I would say Dunkirk, yeah, is if the he most, never gets a screenwriter, is yeah. probably the most like effective, least flawed Nolan film. Well, and it, it's not that flawed. I mean, I thought it was just good. I mean, I don't have a lot of complaints about Dunkirk. No, uh, yeah, because it, it's simpler. It's it's much simpler. It doesn't really try to have a strong narrative. It doesn't try to do those things. Yeah. It just kind of like is almost like a very continuous ex- yeah, experience yeah. in these people's lives. And, and as an experience, it's it's, it's very good. It's very immersive yeah. and it's very effective. And and so anyway, so I yeah. think like if he doesn't get a screenwriter, I think it's just that's that was the high point, and we're not going to get. Because now we've seen what happens when he has a ready-made awesome story that he just has to organize. He can't do that either. So I think he's just, I don't know. Yep. I don't know what to say. Well, I guess that's Oppenheimer. That's Oppenheimer. I feel like our opinions on this here are, you know, perhaps uncharacteristically going to be fairly common. I think, I don't think 
that what we've said is probably a very controversial take. I wouldn't say this was a bad movie. Well, it's not. Like, it's a good It's a good time, like, watching this movie, for yeah. me anyway. Like, I enjoyed seeing it. Me too. It's just, it's such a far cry from a great film, right? Uh-huh. It's like, you know, that you can have a movie that's an interstellar. Uh, that's this, I think I said the same thing under Stellar. I was like, this is such a far cry from a great film, but it's it's good to watch. The scenes are good. Like, they, they look good, and just the narrative just doesn't really work. And uh, Oppenheimer's the same way. It just doesn't work. But as a series of individual scenes, it looks quite nice, and it's, like, good movie making in that respect. Yep. So, not much has changed. No, it's... A lot has changed since The Prestige which was one of the first movies I saw by Christopher Nolan, uh, co-written by his brother, I think. Mm. That has a like a watertight narrative almost. It's really well woven together. Uh, I don't know how you go from there to here, but we did, and that's where we're at. So that's it for our new releases month. That's our last one. That's our bookend. Yeah, I mean, we'll have another new releases month at some point. What are we going to watch next month, Anna Retberg? It's ensemble cast movies. Yay! Yay. Oh, starting with one of my personal favorites, Pulp Fiction. Yeah. Boy, we are going... This is like the cold plunge. This is like the when you go from extreme hot to extreme cold or vice versa. Yeah. We're going from a movie that had like almost incompetent writing, screenwriting in Oppenheimer to one of the best films ever written in the history of cinema. Like, that's like, that, wow, okay. Pulp Fiction. I mean, Pulp Fiction is is a writing masterpiece. I mean, I don't know how else to describe it. It's like, in terms of a screenplay, it's got to be in your top five of all time. If it's not, I don't know how you're rating movies. Mm -hmm. Um, Screenplays, I should say. So we're going from like, I wouldn't say bottom of the barrel, but pretty bad to the best in the world. That's that's a pretty it's gonna be pretty jarring. It sure is. Well, thanks for joining us for this episode, and we will see you next week for pulp fiction. We absolutely will. See you then, everyone. Bye.